we're in the <clears throat> excuse me, middle of a series in the Psalms, particularly how Christ is taught in the Psalms, even though Christ isn't mentioned, how he's revealed to us in the Psalms. And as I think about Psalm 15, I can't help but go to, in my head, Matthew 22, where Jesus, as he often does, he's uh, in a group of people. He's in Jerusalem at this time in Matthew 22, and he's teaching. And he's really, uh, he doesn't have a particular way of making friends when he teaches oftentimes, because there's people who he offends, there's people who he upsets, there's people who he confuses, and such is the case here in Matthew 22. And someone comes up to him, a really righteous man, a lawyer who's also a Pharisee, asks Jesus, what's the most important commandment? If you were a Jew, you were all about the law and the commandments. And so he asks Jesus, what's the most important commandment? What is the greatest? And Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first command. But there's a second, and it's this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There's some churches uh, today, great churches, that their, their mission statement all over their, uh, their literature and on the walls, it says, loving God, loving others, or love God, love people. And I think if you were to encompass all of what the Christian life is all about, it's about those two things. It's about loving God and about loving people. And I'm convinced that if you truly love God, you will in time, develop a genuine love for others, for your neighbors. This will be a byproduct of loving God, is loving others. And so in our text this morning, Psalm 15, we'll look at it in three ways. We see that it starts with a question in verse 1. So if you're taking notes, you'll notice it starts with a sobering question. There's a humble response. And then third, there is a sure promise. And so those are the headings under which we'll study this text this morning. But the sobering question is, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who has permission to enter? And not just enter one time to pray or to, to come up and to go down, as was the Jewish custom, ascending to the temple or to the tabernacle in the days, of, in the days before the temple, but to stay a while, to, to really dwell and to find fellowship and community and to stay in the presence of the Lord. What is required. Who can do this? Who belongs to the Lord? And I wonder how many times we ask this question of ourselves when we pray. Maybe it's before meal or before going to bed or before coming to church. I wonder how often we approach the Lord this way or when we come to church. Do we ask ourselves, Lord, who can enter your church? Who can uh, read your word? I would imagine if you got a letter in the mail that was addressed to you that had gold around the envelope and it was a nicely uh, properly written letter news, an invite to go to Buckingham Palace, just you for a meeting with the royal family, I would imagine you'd probably go get yourself a new outfit. You probably would maybe get your, your hair done. You'd probably think a little bit about what you're going to say, how you're going to eat the meal, how you're going to carry, conduct yourself in the presence of royalty. And so how much more shall we prepare ourselves for entering the presence of the Lord? And not only entering the presence of the Lord, but dwelling and communing with the Lord. And this very question actually presumes something. The fact that there's even anyone who can dwell with the Lord presumes that uh, there's an invitation or this even an option. And so in some ways, this is, a, this is a bit of a scandalous question. It's a bit of a sobering question to even inquire who can be with the Lord. This psalm would be a lot shorter if it went like this. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? No one. Nobody. Could be two verses, could be a lot shorter. But it's not, because there is an answer. In Psalm 8, 
The, the King David reflects this way. He says, looking at all that the Lord has made, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He says, when I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all of that you've, what you've put in place, and he's brought, he's brought low, and he says, what is, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you would care for him? And so we see from the earliest point in scripture, the earliest days of creation, that God's actually made us different than he's made everything else. And he's made us for himself. He's made us to have community, have fellowship with him, to dwell in his presence. And that's the hope of, of the Christian, isn't it? Is to dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. That's, the, in fact, the chief end of man, as, is, as it's written for us in the, uh, the, one of the catechisms of great, of great time, is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him or to dwell in his presence forever. And so the fact that we can even answer, ask this question is, is, is sobering. But what's even more miraculous, as we see, is that there's an answer. So not only is the question sobering, the answer also is humbling. And we see the answer in verses 2 through till verse 4. And the response, the response, the answer is, is not what you would expect, because in a Jewish mind, it was about the law. It was, what do I have to do to, to cleanse? And how can I, uh, what animal do I have to sacrifice? And in fact, uh, it was only the priests who could enter into the holy place. And so you were, if you were a Jew, your mind was full of, of checklists, spiritual chores that you had to do to be clean, presentable to the Lord. But this list here is, is not a list of rituals, is it? It's an inventory of the character of someone who seeks after God. It's not a laundry list of things to do, but it gets at the character, at the heart of the person seeking to dwell with the Lord. And your character is built brick by brick, uh, whether for good or for bad, whether for righteousness or unrighteousness. And ladies, this is the kind of person in Psalm chapter 15, verse 2 to 4, that you might want to marry, someone who seeks after the Lord someone who walks blamelessly and does what is right, someone who doesn't slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor or take up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This getting to the heart is, is precisely what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he kind of comes up against the Jewish law and, and in a way doubles down and says, you've been told that you, you shall not murder a brother. Well, I tell you, don't, don't be angry with a brother. Or he'll say, uh, you've been told not to commit adultery, but I say, whoever has, looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. He says, it's, even, even wicked people love those who love him, but I tell you, love those who hate you, love those who are your enemies. And he says, when you, give, when you give gifts, don't do it outwardly so people will see. He says, give in secret. Give in such a way that your, your one hand won't know what your other hand is doing. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. And so we see this here in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. This is the kind of person who can ascend the holy hill and dwell with the Lord. Uh, Noah, Job, Zechariah, Elizabeth, these are all uh, names in the Bible who are known to have blameless lives. On Friday, we had our staff Christmas party, and I won an award that was, I was nominated by our staff for, uh, it's called the Coffee First Award. And I will forever go down in PFPC history as the pastor who needs, I should say, the most coffee. 
but I wonder what it would be like. My name will never be in the scriptures, but that's where I would want my name to be, is in that list of Noah, Job, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, and others whose walks were blameless, who, did, who do what is right and speak the truth in their heart. It doesn't call you to a life of perfection, but it calls you to a life where your character or your conduct can't be called into question. No, no charge against you would be substantiated. In other words, if there was a camera following you around <clears throat> 24 hours a day and watched by people who didn't know you, what, what would they conclude about you? Would they conclude that you're, would they conclude that you're righteous? Would they conclude that you're blameless in all of your ways? And I wonder if how often we frame our decisions with this in mind. We ask ourselves not, is this pleasing to God? But we ask instead, is this pleasing to my boss? Or is this pleasing to my kids? Or will this decision I make be pleasing to somebody first? And it's not bad to make a decision that your spouse will be glad with, but I don't know that we often or all the time make decisions based on what is pleasing to God first. Or we think more about what's financially wise than what's eternally wise in the things that we choose. But Jesus prays in John 17, 17, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. And he says, your word is truth. So my prayer and, and the prayer of this psalm is that you would be transformed by the scriptures. I heard a story, and, and I, I doubt it's true, but it's a tale in, in missing the point. And what happens is there's a man who goes to prison, and while he's in prison, he's got a long sentence, decades, and he's allowed one book, and so he has a friend who sends him a Bible. And he spends the rest of his time in prison reading this Bible. He reads it every day, and he's just studying it every day. He's with a rock scraping, uh, you know, little, little ticks on the wall and things like that in his prison cell. And so he gets out. Uh, of prison finally, and he's, he's got his Bible, and he, he sits down with his friend for coffee, and his friend says, hey, did you get that Bible I sent you? And he says, yes, I did. I, I, I read it every day. Uh, I, I read it up every day. I, I read it back to front. In fact, I've even worn out the pages. And his friend tells him, well, what did you learn? What did you learn? And he says this. He says, did you know that the Bible has 807,361 words? Do you know that it has 31,103 verses? It's 1,189 chapters. And his friend says, no, I didn't know that. He says, well, did you know that the longest chapter is Psalm 119? It's 176 verses and 2,445 words. And he goes on and on. And he, he says that, you know, the shortest book is 219 words, while the longest book is thousands of words. He recites to him the longest name, which, by the way, is Meher Shalal Hashbash in Isaiah chapter 6, 18 letters long. That God's name appears 4,691 times. And the oldest patriarch before the flood was Methuselah, who lived 969 years. And on and on and on and on he goes. And it becomes very evident to the friend that the man who, who just finished his life sentence, reading the Bible longer than most of us ever will, he knew the words of the Bible, but he missed the word of God. You see, it's possible to know the word of God. It's possible to read the word of God. And it's also possible to be unchanged by the truth. But may it be true of what Jesus prayed, that we would be sanctified in the truth, the word of God. May God's word transform all we say, think, and do, like we see here, the life in Psalm 15. But let's continue, verse 3. It says, who does not slander? Again, this is, this is the one who can enter and dwell with God. One who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor or takes up a reproach against a friend. 
Uh, we're, we're in the middle of raising young kids and our family, and often you'll hear, if you came to my house and put a camera in my house, you would hear something like, don't talk to your brother that, that way, or don't talk to your sister that way. That's not how we do it in our house. That's not how you treat someone you love. And so we ought to treat people like Psalm 15 describes for us. We ought to treat people like they really are. And whether or not you like a person does not reflect how God views that person as an image bearer. They ought to be treated with dignity, with, with grace, with kindness, with honor, and speak of them in such a way that doesn't harm their character. Let them do that for themselves. It doesn't tarnish their reputation on your, on your part. Don't put them in a position where they're in disrepute with others. Doesn't mean you're always gonna like everybody. That's true of families, that's true of neighborhoods, it's true of coworkers. You're not gonna like everybody or always get along, but it's important to work things out with other family members. Whether or not they're of the household of faith, they are an image bearer of God. Don't seek to stir up strife with your neighbor or slander with your tongue or commit evil towards a neighbor. I've come to see in my own life that it's possible to be saved on the outside only. It's possible to just do nice things, isn't it? And people go, oh, you're so nice, or that thing you did was so nice. It's possible to do that. It's possible to be saved only on the outside, but what's not possible is to truly love God and not genuinely love others as people, as image bearers of God. If you've ever worked, many of you work in non-Christian settings, which is a wonderful thing for us to be salt and light in the world. But if you've uh, ever spent any time in the grocery store or anywhere where there's people, you'll see that people have interesting uh, tools in their toolbox of, of conflict resolution, don't they? Um, you, you've probably learned, I hope at least, that people don't typically respond very well when you swear at them. Uh, they don't respond all that well when you put them down or when you belittle them or when you uh, make yourself seem elevated. These are the tools that, that we're, we're, we're prone to using just automatically. We like to insult one another. Uh, because of our sinful nature, but the gospel gives you new and better tools. Uh, I, I spoke to someone recently who had this old circular saw that they bought at a garage sale, and they loved this thing, uh, and, and they grew to love it. They hated it at first because it only worked half the time. Uh, the bearings were rusted out. The cord sometimes didn't work, but if you held it just right, it would always get the job done. Um, and, and, I, and this person had someone say to them, hey, well, why don't you just get a new saw? Like, this is kind of dangerous. And he said, no, I, I kind of like not knowing what's going to happen, you know? I don't know <laughs> if it'll smoke or if, if I'll lose a finger. I, I kinda, I've kind of grown to love this tool. But the gospel gives you new tools. And so this person uh, ended up getting a new saw and couldn't believe that they waited so long to get new tools. Couldn't believe that they waited so long working with sketchy equipment and always was wondering what would happen. And so the gospel gives you new tools, a whole new toolbox, grace, kindness, humility, love, patience for one another. And so one who is admissible into God's presence is one who uses their new tools that they got. Let's keep going. Psalm 15, verse four. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Verse three has everything to do with how you treat people, regardless of who they are, how you treat them. Verse four has to do with how you think about people, how you view them. And so there's, there's a, it's not a contradiction to love your neighbor, but also hate evil or to hate people who are vile. It's not a contradiction, but there's a distinction there. And uh, John Piper, for those of you who are interested, points it out really well. 
Um, there's, there's thoughts uh, available on, on his website. But he makes a distinction that verse three has everything to do with how you treat people and verse four has everything to, to do with how you think about people, how you view people who are vile. And someone who's, who's worthy or who can sojourn in God's tent and dwell in his holy hill doesn't admire. There's nothing enticing about those who do evil. There's nothing that they would venerate about the wicked. Wicked are viewed as wicked and deplorable, but instead we honor those who honor the Lord, who love God and do the right thing. Psalm 139 says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? It's not a, it's not a contradiction, again, to love your neighbor, but also hate wickedness. John Piper says, it's entirely possible to love somebody you despise. It's entirely possible. Jesus on the cross, in fact, as he's being crucified to those who are killing him, prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he loved them unto death on a cross for them. While they were crucifying him, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And lastly, it doesn't make an oath that he can't keep. He's true to his word even when it hurts, comes at a great cost. Verse five, doesn't put out his money at interest and doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. Have you ever helped somebody in need because someone else would notice? Or have you ever done something because you knew other people were watching? Or you stood something to gain by helping that person? Well, this is not what Psalm 15.5 tells us to do. We're, we're urged to help someone in need even though there's no benefit, but rather out of genuine love, help your neighbor when, when you stand to gain nothing. You see this with the Good Samaritan, right? Samaritans and Jews did not like each other. And the Samaritan stood nothing to gain by helping this, this, this man. Also, Putting out money at interest and not taking a bribe against the innocent means you stand to gain nothing by breaking the backs of other people, and you certainly won't profit from from treating people unjustly. This has everything to do with how we conduct ourselves, not only in business and in our work, but even in our own minds. Our our economy is not only money, you know. How do you treat people? How How do you act towards people who you can gain something, even with in terms of reputation? or in terms of status, or standing, or the views of other people. But you see, the righteous person doesn't worry about getting ahead and doesn't, certainly doesn't worry about falling behind because the promise here for us and throughout Scripture is that God's got you. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to worry about, about trying to get ahead. You don't have to worry about trying to make the next step up. And you don't have to worry about falling behind. These are the kinds of things, this is the, the humble response to the question, who can dwell on the hill of the Lord? Who can, who can enter the presence of God? The third thing is a sure promise. There's at least two responses, I think. When you read these verses, I think there's at least two, two responses. There may be more, but I can think of two. The first one is, you know, this sounds just like me. A response of pride that says, yeah, I, I, I actually am pretty good. 
And sometimes when you compare yourself up against other people, maybe you are pretty good, maybe I am pretty good up against other people. This is how I used to do in high school is I'd get my test back and I wouldn't really care what the number was, I just cared how it was in relation to everybody else. May not be the best, may not be the worst, but if I'm in the middle, then it's okay. And so if you measure yourself up against the standard of other people in the world, most of us are probably okay. But as Pastor Paul reminded us last week, we don't know how sinful we really are. But if your response to this is, yeah, this, these verses describe me, there's a good chance you probably already know how sinful you are. The word of God to you, if your response is one of pride, will be like a fence. And when you read the scriptures, it will be like a fence that lays out boundaries for you and will keep you from what's beyond it. There will be something that appears to be greener. There will be something that appears to be better, but the scripture prohibits you from doing or from pursuing. I can remember in some of my early jobs, eventually someone would know or they would hear or I would tell them I would go to youth group and I go to church and they would say, oh, you're, you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay, so that must be why you don't do this and do this and do this. And that must be why you do all these things and you don't do all these things. If your response to the scriptures is one of pride, it will, the scriptures to you will seem like offense. It will be cr a cruelty to those who wonder just how far they can go on their own. It will always be holding you back from you doing things your own way. And if that's you, if when you read these verses, you go, yeah, that, that sounds a lot like me. I would encourage you to go to God and I would encourage you to ask the Lord to begin a gracious, humbling work in you because the reality is this doesn't sound like any of us. It doesn't sound like me. There's another response though and that's a response of humility. And the response of humility doesn't say, oh, this sounds just like me. It goes, oh, this sounds just like Jesus. This sounds like who I want to be. This sounds like how I want to act, how I want to behave. This sounds like how I want my heart to be. If you measure yourself up against the standard of other people, you're probably okay. But if you measure yourself up against the standard of the scriptures, you will realize that you indeed are helpless and you need rescuing and you need feeding. And going back to Paul's word last week, you, you don't actually know how sinful you really are. You still don't know. You are continuing to discover your own sin. And so rather than God's word to you being like a fence, God's word to you will be like fodder. It will be like a place of feeding, a place of rest, a place of nourishment. The scriptures to you will be a faithful guide to those who seek to honor the Lord who can bring satisfaction. The word of God will be like a precise roadmap to those who are diligently seeking after treasure. It will help you, the word of God will. And so if your response is one of humility and this causes you to fall to your knees and ask the Lord for help, I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to go to God, that you would feast on his word and as Jesus prayed, that you would be sanctified in the truth of his word. Lastly, the last verse, chapter 15, verse five. The promise is that he who does these things shall never be moved. There's a really powerful image that's found all throughout the Psalms of, of your foot slipping. And if you've ever climbed something, whether it's rock or something, you'll know that when your foot slips, uh, it's pretty scary. It can be, depending on what's, what's beneath you. This is an image that you see in Psalm 21, uh, 46, 112, 121, and 125 of your foot either stumbling or not stumbling. 
Um, I have a daughter who's three, and she's learning to climb things on the park, and she's getting better. But as we're, as we're going, as she's learning, there's these, there's these climbing walls with footholds, and these things terrify her, unless her mom or I are standing behind her. And what, what we do in the early days, at least, is I would literally grab her foot and put it on the first rung, and she would stand there holding on for dear life, and I would grab her other foot from behind her and put it on the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, until she could make her way up. And so while she's only two feet in the air, she feels like she's 200 feet in the air. But she knows that I will not let her feet slip. I will not let her fall. I need her to take that step. I need her to keep going. But she knows that I will not let her foot slip. And so you may feel like you're 200 feet in the air. You may feel like you're 2,000 feet in the air. But I need you to know that he who does these things shall never be moved. God will not let you fall. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And he will look after you. It's, it's true. I wonder in some of your life groups if, if these are stories you've been able to share over the last few weeks of ways that you've seen God be a sure footing for you, a way that God has saved you from slipping or saved you from stumbling. Let your life and character be shaped by the scriptures and you will know that your foot will never be moved. God will see to it. The Apostle Paul, who knew a thing or two about persecution, who knew a thing or two about pain and peril, says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, you may know these words, but I want you to hear them. He, he prays this. He says this, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Father, you, you don't need us, yet you've invited us to know you. You've created us for you. And so you don't need us, but we need you. And I thank you for welcoming us into your presence, for living within us, for going with us, for keeping our feet from slipping. Help us to love one another, Lord, when it's hard, when we don't get along. Help us to show the kind of love to others that we would have shown towards ourselves. And I pray most of all that your word would be a guide for all that we say, think, and do. Lord, it's to your glory and in your name we pray. Amen.